Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. But, uh... Oh, I don't see Dan. I don't see Dan either. Okay, well, that's fine. I, I sent him an email and I announced... Hey, that's fine. Not an issue. We've got uh, Cody Wilson with us today, our guest for our last half hour here on our big broadcast. And uh, Cody is absolutely amazing. And uh, the topic today, Democrats immediately call for gun control after the Las Vegas shooting. And Cody Wilson is the owner and proprietor of GhostGunner.net. He's also the author of the groundbreaking book, Come and Take It, The Gun Printer's Guide to Thinking Free. Um, First of all, Cody, tell us a little bit about your book. And I know me and Don have got some questions for for you uh hey guys yeah the book is a history of our company defense distributed which uh by the way released an update to our ghost gunner cnc machine on october 1 which now allows people in addition to making ar-15s and ar-308 receivers you can now make handguns like the m1911 and the glock unserialized and in your home uh, our company basically allows you to make the to use the software and the hardware of open source technology to to make Second Amendment protected items with total comfort and privacy. That's awesome. Now, uh, now, Don, you uh, you've been following this Las Vegas story, and uh, I know you've probably got some questions here for Cody. Uh, go ahead and jump in there, my friend. Well, uh, Cody, I think we both are on the same side. The, 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 you know, the, it's like a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, somebody gets hurt. Uh, we, we've got to ban the guns. Um, I, uh, I guess my first question is, uh, what's your view on it, uh, and we'll go from there. Uh, well, sure. I, I think uh, most most of our enemies in the in the gun control world operate on bad faith, and you know a lot of a lot of conservatives often fall for gun control, and perhaps are falling for it even right now with calls to ban the bump stock and other things. We often fall for it because we we come to the argument with good faith. We we do. Uh, share the concerns of, of many people in the gun control movement that, okay, it's a problem when people get killed. Uh, it's a problem when guns are used for bad things and when criminals use them. But the left has an ideological motivation to basically disarm the entire population and to end our civic tradition of, of gun ownership to one degree or another. And there's really no such thing as partial, you know, gun freedom. Uh, so... Basically, I say that every occasion, every shooting is always an opportunity for these people to implement what they see as their long-term goal, to disarm us. And we should never really approach the argument willing to give them anything, because they'll come every month. They'll come every week. Well, yeah, uh, the the metaphor I use is the camel and the the, uh, sticks his uh, nose in the tent. And if you let let him do that, eventually he's in the tent and you're outside. I couldn't agree more. Um, well, you know, uh, um, you uh, you know, when I was uh, uh, much younger, we, we worried that the the, the communists, uh, the Russian uh, version of it, um, uh, were the ones behind the the uh, this movement to uh, disarm uh, Americans, and uh, who do you think is really behind this movement? Um, to disarm us. Well, I think your suspicion's been proven more or less correct in in time. You know, a lot of a lot of the numbers and documents finally came out about the protest movement, the anti-war movement back in the day, and 
a lot of those people and the money really was Bolshevik money and <laughs> foreign money. And uh, a lot of the foreign influence in our government is, is tied to democratic socialist politics. I think as of now, the people that want us disarmed are, are the establishment, the, the elite, the ruling class, because it's always in their interest uh, to not have that kind of safety valve. But they're willing to, uh, like Paul Ryan and the rest of them, they're willing to look with the Dianne Feinsteins and Pelosi's of the world. They're, they're willing to have the excuse to consider banning our things because they're not really comfortable with the old Republican understanding of, of the right to keep and bear arms. You're very, I think you're very accurate on that point. Um, if you remember Madame Lafarge from A Tale of Two Cities, who knitted it? Do you think uh, we we have to somehow rather out these people in order to uh, uh, really understand what the uh, the uh, the true issues and the true fights about? Uh, great question. I mean, you know, my experience is, is limited in our movement. I'm I've only really been involved five or six years now, so your experience is much more valuable. But it does seem to me, though, that you, there isn't any longer the requirement to out anyone. Uh, they pretty much just come out and tell you what they think now. Like, I mean, like Senator Chris Murphy and these others, I mean, out and out willing to admit to you that, I mean, even that classic quote of Feinstein's, or no, I think this was Pelosi when they said, well, look, this is going to be a slippery slope if we start banning bump stocks. And Pelosi goes, well, I hope it is. <laughs> uh, they pretty much are clear in their intentions. And Hillary Clinton was, was clear as well. They'll, they'll still pay just a little bit of lip service to the idea of not violating the Second Amendment, but but we all understand that they mean the Second Amendment basically to them means we can take whatever gun we want in whatever way we want because the Second Amendment's not unlimited. So you'll have whatever we say you can have, and that's the right to keep and bear arms. So yeah, like what 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 else is there to out after that? Well, I, th- I think there's a, a, a really an education uh, process. Uh, you know, it's interesting they they want to narrow. The Second Amendment, yet every other amendment, they uh, they seem to uh, want to expand it. The necessary and proper clauses uh, so wide you could drive a, th- a truck through it. But um, so, in your view, uh, any sort of uh, uh, conciliation uh, is uh, is the wrong move. Am I hearing you correctly? Uh, yeah, especially when we're creating if we create new frameworks for them and stuff, it's just, it's simply easier to then add on additional regulations, additional schedules. So where the bump stock thing doesn't look like too difficult an issue, you know, it's an absurd device. Who cares, right? It doesn't matter. It's, you know, it's not something that actually improves the efficiency or operability of a weapon. But to give that to them and to allow them to have a new type of regulation is the mistake because it's something they can build out. Uh, into a new way of regulating rifle features in, in maybe another five, ten years. So just as a, as a method, uh, why, why give them the power to begin to uh, take away certain design aspects of, of the rifle? They have, no business, they have no business being there. Well, um, I'm sorry I didn't quite understand how yours work, but uh, some people are arguing we should develop guns uh, that uh, uh, can only be fired by their owners. Uh, via uh, fingerprint or iris or whatever, but uh, uh, what do you think about that? And we've explained a little further to me what your your system does. Your offering. Oh guns. sure, sure. Our system is not a system of guns per se. It's it's a manufacturing 
uh, setup. So basically, we give you a, a kit CNC, and we give you software, and it allows you to make the guns that you already enjoy. It just allows you to make them to military grade. So like milling, not necessarily printing, but you can you can mill an AR-15 receiver or a 1911 or a Glock receiver, and it's just as good and the same as as one you could buy. It's it's just that when you do that yourself you, you don't have to put the marks on it you don't have to put it into the ffl system so there's a certain kind of privacy that you're afforded if you can make the rifle yourself or if you can make the handgun yourself that's what we let people do um your question about the, the smart guns basically is look it's always funny to watch the new company and then the hackers come and just basically break the technology and the, i mean these guns are not safe if one if they can be hacked but two if if someone else can't use them in an unusual situation that's actually a security problem i mean if if i'm out of the house and my family's attacked well then i don't they don't they don't have a way of protecting themselves they have uh they i've endangered them when they thought that maybe they were safe so there's there's too many complexities and, and layers of the situation to ever really allow smart guns especially by law to be the only type of gun that a family or or someone in a self-defense situation should rely on I couldn't. Uh, uh, Jiggy, uh, Dan's been trying to reach me via Skype. So you want to try to get him? I will. I will try to. Uh, I will try to grab him real quick. Now, uh, now, now, Cody, you've been called the Bill Gates of the Second Amendment. Uh, <laughs> how, how did how did you get that title, my friend? Well, that's a crazy. That's a crazy title. Uh, I mean, I like it. Don't get me wrong. It's a nice one. It's <laughs> quite something to live up to. Though. I think we I think we got it because we started as a software company, and we're we're still a software company, by the way. But uh, we got there because look, man, we we're doing everything we can to take computers and digital technologies and manufacturing technologies and find ways to to help those help you make a gun. So it didn't mean that you know we didn't invent anything necessarily fundamental, but we keep inventing ways that can make you a better uh, manufacturer of guns or, or a more efficient pra- practitioner of your Second Amendment. Ultimately, what we think we're going to add here, like if you have the right to keep and bear arms, you know, it means you have the right to make them, and we're trying to empower you to actually use that right to make arms. That's awesome. Now, I think Dan Perkins has joined us. Uh, Dan, we're, we're we're talking with Cody Wilson here. He is a uh, he has been called the uh, the the Steve Jobs of uh, of guns. Uh, he is he is absolutely amazing, and uh, he is the owner and proprietor of GhostGunner.net. He's also the author of the groundbreaking book "Come and Take It: The Gun Printer's Guide to Thinking Free" and uh, talking Second Amendment in Las Vegas and everything today. Um, do you have any questions for, for, for our guy here on the uh, here on the phone? Well, I, I apologize. I just got a new upgrade on my operating system, and it wiped out all of my passwords. <laughs> Not a problem. Not a problem. Was. So I I finally. Um, Figured out how to get on, uh, get to you on my computer. So I apologize for being late. Um, that's okay. I w- I that's okay, da- Dan. Pardon um, me. That's okay, Dan. I got got to talk a lot today. Thank you. <laughs> maybe, I just, maybe I should just hang up and let you finish the show. No, no, I, no. I was going to hang up and let you uh, <laughs> even it okay. out. So I, I, I didn't obviously didn't hear the first part of the show. Um, are you talking about uh, three-dimensional printers producing guns, or what are you doing? Oh, my, are we talking to me now? Yes, yes, yes we're, we're, sure we're, 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 we're talking to you, my friend. Sorry <laughs> about that. I guess we're talking about, like, we have a, we have a milling 
machine, a milling system that we've been selling for a couple of years now. And, um, that mill basically finishes military-grade AR receivers, and now, as of October 1, 1911 frames and Glock frames. These are, these are difficult blueprints to, to hit. Uh, so basically, we're giving people manufacturing capability. It's not quite 3D printing, but it's not unlike it because it's similar types of software and, and hardware working together. So we're just talking about how, uh, yeah, you know, we're adding at, at a time of gun control, we're adding an additional layer of, of capability to the to the American who would make his arms in addition to keeping and pairing them. What what has been your experience in in, in recent years? Um, I I just finished a report uh, commentary for. Um, Newsmax on the shooting in uh, in Las Vegas, and um, there's some very um, I don't, startling. Probably would be a good word, but 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 there's some startling information that I was able to find with some some research that that kind of surprised me. Um, they're saying right now that uh, this was in the Washington Examiner at the end, early part of October of this year that uh, 2017 may be the second biggest year for gun sales ever and might even top 2016. It went on to say that uh, they, uh, they talked about a Pew Research study that said that it they surveyed people in March and April of this year and 67% of the time the reason why people were buying guns were protection. And another study was done by Chatham University um, of what the greatest fear of America. And I find it interesting that the number one reason that people are purchasing guns is because they they want protection. And the number, the number one thing they want protection against is the government of all things. 60.6%. They, uh, and terrorism is a, a distant second at, at 41. So... Uh, I'm assuming that you're seeing a, a significant growth in the demand for people to be able to make their own weapons. I'll say yes, unequivocally. And uh, though I didn't have those same public opinion numbers, I would I would probably give you similar stories from our customers, you know, the, the people that call in and, uh, and want to buy the machine. I had thought that after Trump was elected, especially in November of, of last year, that maybe demand would you know, totally die off for our business. We had a great couple of years in the last two years of Obama. But what's interesting is that, yeah, we still, we still seem to be seeing eight, 10 to 10% growth this year over last. And I, I cannot explain that other than to, to the say, there's just a more intense, like as, as the political situation globally, I guess, gets more, I don't know, dour. Uh, the people seem to sense that, okay, no, nothing's going to get easier from a government point of view. I still don't trust these bums. And as a like as politics become more difficult, they're going to start looking at me when they don't know what to do, and they're going to they're going to think they can disarm me. So I think it's the people's natural response to difficult times to consider arming themselves, and it's totally it's totally natural. Um, I wouldn't disagree with you, but I, I would like to throw out for your consideration another alternative idea. Uh, I suspect that given that sixty seven percent of the survey were purchasing for their own protection, and they were 60.6%. Their greatest fear was the government. Uh, with the left pushing very hard every time there's a shooting for gun control and elimination of the Second Amendment, uh, they, uh, the, the, the liberal Democrats uh, 
continue to push for the elimination of the Second Amendment. And and maybe one of the ways they're going to try and skirt the Second Amendment is to start making, try to make things, specific things, illegal, like the bump stock, and on and on and on. And I'm wondering if the reaction to your buyers is the fact that the, the ability to buy commercial-grade guns may be diminished by legislation and having the ability to make your own gives you a sense of independence and freedom. Well, I certainly think, to the, to the second part of your question about the, the, the sense of independence and freedom, I certainly think that's been one of the largest reasons uh, for purchases of the machine. There's, this is also part of the Trump phenomenon. There's, there's the kind of felt loss of our ability to make things for ourselves, right? This, this attitude that, okay, the elites kind of prefer us in a state of just passive consumption, and there's been a real decay of, of expertise and, and knowledge about things like machining that a, a machine like this and other devices kind of begin to, I don't know, reinvigorate. So people want that. People want to feel that they at least know that they can make a gun, even if they don't make a gun. I, there's plenty of people who buy the machine and then don't use it, for example, just knowing that I think they've purchased a sense of, of surety, that like, they know that if they had to, they could figure out how to do it because they've got one in there, you know, buried in their backyard. So I, I think it's a huge part of it for everybody. But I, until, until the Vegas shooting of this year, I, I don't think it was a narrative that, uh, new gun control was like, a, you know, a possibility, and they'd start trying to ban kind of uh, new accessories or try to ban guns piecemeal. It had looked like they had really exterminated with Trump's election, at least until 2018, any any possibility of something like gun control at the federal level. So I, I think it's a narrative now, but I, I don't think this was even on people's minds, you know, three or four months ago in, in the way that you might be uh, supposing. Well, what was clear about the shootings in uh, in Las Vegas um, that uh, as much as, and I think this is part of the underlying fear that you may be experiencing, part of the underlying fear is that the belief that the government can no longer protect us. Yeah. How, many, I, pe how many people were shot and killed before the police were on the scene to break in the door and, and do whatever? A lot. And and even in the Absolutely. case of Orlando last last year, uh, a lot of people were murdered in Orlando long before the police could ever get there, and so there is a sense of a, almost abandonment that that I'm out here alone. The government really can't protect me. Uh, I I need to be able to protect myself, and um, uh, I have a a, a very long time couple that are friends of ours for many many decades they live in savannah georgia and i visited them recently and the wife announced to my wife that she had got her first gun and my wife was just blown away that this this friend of hers for so many years now owns a rifle and uh, she takes lessons with it what kind of guns do you have the ability to, for a consumer to make uh, with our flagship device, the Ghost Gunner, we allow you to make the AR-15, which is kind of the standard uh, battle rifle, right, America's favorite uh, semi-automatic rifle, and then the AR-308, which is uh, its larger variant, uh, chambered in, in 308, sometimes called the AR-10. And then we allow you to make two handguns right now, the most popular handgun of all time, the M1911, the single-stack 45, government frame, and then... Uh, Another very popular firearm, the uh, the compact Glock, 
it's sometimes called the Glock 19. Yeah. Um, that's a polymer frame. So, you know, it's, it's a, a stable offering, and, of course, we're adding applications all the time, and there's a community of people that operate the machine and have their own kind of unofficial software that they run on it. But yeah, if if you can see what we're, the picture we're trying to paint, we're basically trying to say most most handguns and, and popular commercial carbines are going to be possible for you to make, at least the regulated components you can make, and then you can assemble the rest of the parts off the shelf. So it's something like prepping or survivalism or, or like what you said, if, is if you have that recognition that the government, one, isn't interested in protecting you, two, it takes an active disinterest in protecting you, uh, you at least have that capacity in a way that is private and no one necessarily needs to look in on you for doing it. And I should also say, so it's completely legal. It's always been legal in this country. This country's been built on a, a tradition of people just deciding to become entrepreneurs and building their own guns for themselves. So uh, this certainly is not a suspicious activity, uh, and I don't think it's one to be regulated anytime soon. Can I jump well, in here, sure, uh, Dan, and ask a question which has nothing, really has to do with um, during the Vietnam War, um, American soldiers used to say the the Russian, I want to say, I never can pronounce it correctly, Cosmo, um, uh, the the Russian guns that uh, that the Viet Cong had were much better uh, because they they were jam proof, they. Uh, they took water well, etc. Are you? Um, uh, do you know anything about that? And uh, does your? Yeah. Uh, well, first tell me the name. How you pronounce that name? <laughs> well, th that gun's called the AKM or the Kalashnikov series right. of rifles. Um, the, that was the first time in Vietnam, apparently, that we had seen what the Russians had been working on. So the the most popular variant that we've all heard of is called the AK forty seven. Uh, built in, so that's the automatic Kalashnikov 47. And then the, and the Russians in the Soviet, uh, in the 70s basically revived that design and, and changed it to the AK-74, which is now the standard-issue rifle, even today, of the Russian Federation military. So it's a very popular rifle. Everything you're saying about it is true. It's a famous design, lots of space, lots of tolerances, a, a stamped and milled uh, rifle receiver that has a ton of space in there, so you can just get all kinds of gunk and mud and you know, it's a popular rifle of the Taliban in the Middle East. It's it's the, the most popular rifle of global conflict and perhaps one of the most enduring symbols of the of the 20th century because of what a genius military design it was. Uh, and I should say, the additional thing is, it, it, it was more powerful than the rifles we use in Vietnam on the American side. So not only was it a more, uh, basically a better gun enduring the conditions, but the 7.62 by, by uh, 39 chamber like, like the, the rifle round was able to penetrate the, the dense coverage in the jungles and stuff much better than the than the nato round of the time the 556 yes well uh, I'm, I'm unfortunately the victim of that because i can tell you that from firsthand experience um but i i guess my point um i, I guess i'm really trying to find out from you have you thought about uh, creating a version of that for for the american market Oh, I see. Like on our machine, allowing people to finish their own AK variants, yes. or is is that what you're asking? Yeah. So the AK is a special gun. Uh, a lot of a lot of explosive forces, like uh, contained in inside the receiver, and so the receiver often has to be uh, milled out of steel or uh, made from stamped steel. And because of the way that our our machine works, our CNC machine, 
we actually don't recommend that people finish steel um, components on it. Like we recommend that people use uh, aluminum or polymers or other things because one, it's I mean lighter lighter stuff, but two, the, the tolerancing and the high speed drilling necessary and milling necessary in steel is is very difficult. It requires coolant and requires much better, much more kind of precision and and attention. So yeah, the AK was always like something on our on our menu, but it's actually pretty difficult to make AKs with aluminum receivers and, and it's not safe necessarily. So that gun is a whole lot of gun and uh, we haven't quite come to a way where this generation of machine uh, can can prepare that gun for you. Dan, can I ask just one more question which he brings up? Uh, people are saying that Americans are no longer machinists and that the, the most difficult uh, person to find in, in the United States right now is a machinist or someone. How do you address that issue? Uh, it's funny you say that. Like a lot, we we have that conversation a lot. Um, there's so there's entry level machinists, but there's you're right. There's not a lot of them. Not a lot of people like lining up to become machinists. Certainly hard to find. You know, my even my machinists at our shop don't go too deep. I've only got two or three any given day, and uh, and an old wizard I can call in when I need to. A master machinist. It's it's really hard to find these masters uh, for new companies. And the companies that do have them just kind of keep them on payroll. The number one problem, though, is is that as these old wizards die, there's not really an easy way for them to transfer their knowledge on. There's just so much, I don't know, experience that they have. It's it's very difficult. And like they know, they just know things by intuition about how to program a part and how to how to tool up a part and like how material behaves that you just can't communicate in a classroom setting or in a textbook. And there's just so many different ways to design and plan around how to, to do different kinds of machining. So it, that's why it's, it's a tragedy that, that nations like China are, are kind of on the upswing in terms of that raw industrial capacity and, and knowledge. And people like us in Russia, like literally Russia is having to reverse engineer all the stuff they built in the Soviet period because they simply forgot how they even made it in the first place like 30, 40 years ago. So uh, it's kind of incredible to watch us on the, on the back side of these things. I sympathize with what you're saying. I think it's there's evidence of that. Dan, back to you. But I think we should have him on our program. Yeah, um, I think it's a good idea. Um, I know we don't have much time, but but let me let me get uh, come back around to the American people. Um, I wonder if part of the 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 increasing in demand and the research that shows that Americans, uh, over 60%, are concerned about the government's ability to protect them. I wonder if a lot of that has to do with the way um, the state governments and the federal government l literally looked the other way when they were dealing with the illegal, illegal immigration problem and the creation of sanctuary cities, counties, and states now, um, that the fear level of potential bodily harm increased as the crime rate increased of, of the illegals that were here. I think that's, uh, I think your instincts are right in asking the question. I guess one answer would have to rely on, on the actual data and, and reported crimes on victimization surveys and stuff, but I bet you there's a correlation between, and I think this has been reported in, in papers like the New York Times, that would don't don't even want to admit it. But where you live in more mixed 
let's say, in terms of inc- immigration status, where you live in more mixed communities, there was actually a higher likelihood for citizens in those communities to vote for Donald Trump in 2016. And this has been called the, I forget, there's a certain kind of effect, but where communities like in the Northeast actually don't have a lot of immigrants and uh, mixed neighborhoods and stuff, they would vote more liberal. But where you get closer to border towns and minority, majority minority counties, there's actually a huge swing effect toward Donald Trump, which is kind of a... Uh, uh, in recognition of a, like a sensitivity like you're suggesting. And I think we also have an analogy in Europe where, uh, like in, in, fr- in certain communities in France, and of course like where we were seeing a lot of the Syrian, the so-called Syrian and North African migrations in, from the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these communities, after they take a few months of this stuff in 14 and 15, uh, they suddenly decided, you know what, I think I'm a, I think I'm a right-wing populist now. <laughs> and for the first time in the post-war period, they would vote for right-wing parties in their parliament, you know, and this is directly right. related to their uh, experience of immigration. So I, I think you're correct because they know the government, you know, it's like, wait a minute, the government is just literally running roughshod over me here with some of this. Uh, and they'll say things on TV, but like, I'm looking out my backyard. There's, there's literally, you know, African migrants running on the highways, shutting, shutting down the road. <laughs> right. This is video you can watch on YouTube. You know? All right. So let, <laughs> let me ask you one more quick question. Um, do you, do you are, are any of the processes or the machinery that you sell subject to ATF regulation? Uh, great question. So the answer the answer is no. Uh, the answer is that our machine uh, is regulated the same way like a drill press would be. Just so it's a neutral piece of machinery. It's uh, it's actually so we went all the way to the Commerce Department and got the Commerce Department of the United States to say you know this is scheduled the same way that a vacuum cleaner is, you know, we could, we could even sell the machine overseas. So no, it's not ITAR. It's not regulated by the ATF. It's considered a milling machine. So just like you can use a hammer to hammer a nail, you can use a milling machine to cut a piece of aluminum, you know, but it's up to you to turn that into a gun that has no, uh, there's no way to invite the ATF into that situation though, until it's after the fact. You provide patterns uh, for consumers to, to make the, the guns they want. Uh, we do, but more importantly, we don't lock down the machine. So like any any type of computer, you can basically learn the system and program it to do whatever you want. We're not going to tie your hands and tell you, you know, you can only do what we've programmed the machine to do. It actually doesn't come pre-programmed to do anything. So if you just want to teach yourself basic CNC, uh, you know, go nuts. That's what it is. It's there for you to use and, and to benefit from. What's your, uh, what's your website? Uh, people can find our machine at ghostgunner.net. So we're operated by Defense Distributed. That's our parent company. And our our mill is called the Ghost Gunner. What kind of investment would a consumer have to make into one of your milling machines? Oh, yeah, you'd think by now I'd tell people what the, the damn price is. Um, it's it's a $1,600 machine. So what it is, it's, I mean, extremely affordable. And I mean, we offer financing. We offer all kinds of ways to help you to get into it as well. I understand that not everybody can just throw down 1600 on a weekend, but mm-hmm. uh, again, for what it is, it's extremely affordable. Some of these 3D printers are three, four times much and, right. you know, can do far, far less than what this can actually help you do. So is it hard to learn to, to, to use your milling machine? Uh, I would say no. Like the way we've packaged the files, we've got, and this is, you know, literally true, we've got uh, actual Vietnam veterans I know I've got one on the show here today, but I'm saying we've got actual Vietnam veterans who I kind of thought they gave up learning how to use a computer and decided to teach themselves 
simply so they could use our machine. You know, if you're if you're motivated, like this is going to be pretty easy for you because we understand that the gun demographic skews a little bit uh, a little bit older in some situations. So we understand that there's certain consumer expectations there that aren't the same as like a 20 year old who's used to getting a new phone every other week or something. You know. Fascinating concept. Yes. How long you been in business? Uh, well, we've been in business about about five years now. Uh, we've been doing all kinds of things. I mean, yeah, we we did we did the first three D printing of guns on three D printers. I mean, we've been around. You know, we've been able to see a lot of things here and there about what digital technologies can help you do in, in terms of making guns. And so we've distilled a little bit of that, and we're we're getting a little bit better at, at turning it into commercial packages that uh, that you can benefit from. What are your sales? Uh, I, you know, I'm happy sharing them, man. We did, uh, we did about 3 million last year. It was like 2.8, wow. 2. just gross. And I think gross. we're on, we're on pace to break that again, man. It's, we've sold maybe, maybe 4,000 or so machines so far, which is, you know, a lot for us. We, we started as just, a, you know, four or five people and now it's up to about 20 people now, you know. You got a real business. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. I think we're bigger than the bump stock company. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you want a that, low profile. You, know, you want a low profile. <laughs> yeah, how about that? Hey, but you know, in about a month, I guess it'll be pretty easy to be bigger than the, the, the bump stock company. What do you, how do you do the barrels? How does the customer do the barrels? <laughs> well, we don't have to. So I'm, what I'm saying is, like, you're finishing, in most cases, you're finishing just the rifle receivers or the frames on the handguns. So you only have to finish or do the pocket milling or drilling on those components. And then other more established components like gas blocks, barrels, you can bring in. You can just buy and you can assemble. You know, you don't have to. Mm. You, the, the beneficial part is to make the regulated component of the gun so that you don't have to serialize it. You know, no one knows that you have to have it. But it's a very important that you make it yourself because if you let someone else make it for you, well, that's where the ATF regulates the, the commerce. Which, what's your next project? Uh, I think we're staying with this machine for a little bit. I'm, I'm on my way right now, actually. I'm driving to the, the Knob Creek machine gun shoot in, uh, in Kentucky, in, near Radcliffe, Kentucky. And we're going we're gonna to show everybody that we've just got this new handgun uh, capability. We've only been selling it for about a week now. We've already sold, you know, about 100 machines on it. I mean, I think it's a wow. big deal that you can make handguns with this machine. Like, I actually think it's going to kind of change the way we talk about our gun politics because... You know, maybe not everybody likes AR-15s because they're just big rifles, you know. But I think a lot of people are interested in a conversation where you can have a handgun to military spec and no one has to know about it. I think that I think that changes the game. Kim, do I have time for one more question? Yes, go ahead, my friend. Do you have to, So if I buy your machine and I create my own gun or guns, I don't have to put a serial number on it. That's exactly right, man. If, if it's made by you under your hand, there's no requirement. The ATF, for all these years, has only required licensed manufacturers to put serial numbers on it as a way to keep a hold of their commercial stock for purposes of, of ATF trace and stuff, you know? Okay. Uh, now, you can put numbers on a gun if you want. It's just a way to keep a hold of them in your own inventory. But there's mm -hmm. no legal requirement to serialize a gun if you make it yourself. But if somebody used to build a gun and use it in an illegal, illegal activity it would be impossible to trace it because there's no serial number. I think it would be I think it would be impossible to trace it with the with the traditional method. Yeah, you're not gonna find it in, in some firearm distributor's A and D book. You're not gonna find it. It wasn't there. But 
you, there's a couple things that you can begin to do. You just have to use other detective techniques. I mean, you can tell, number one, very quickly you'll be able to say, hmm, perhaps this gun was, you know, handmade. And fine, now you're looking for people that are making their own guns. You're not looking for people that they bought or stole them. Um, right. It just changes things. Like, nothing's to win Super. for the time being for the, for the privacy of the common man. Thank you for sharing. I'm sorry I missed the first half of the show. Uh, no, 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 no. We're we're, no, we're, we're a real pleasure, man. We're Thank glad you that you uh you gl we're glad you guys joined us. Now, uh, before we let everybody go, Don, how do we get a hold of you online, my friend? DonMazzello.com. That's the best way of doing it. Recalculating.biz and uh, hashtag Two SB Digest if you want to be part of our uh, team. And Dan, uh, give us an update to the nonprofit and everything. Um, songs and Stories for Soldiers. Us. Uh, I'm doing a presentation in two weeks to a retired officers group in Northern Florida. Alert from. And um, uh, and then uh, and then on Veterans Day, I'm uh, making a, a presentation at a uh, the Rotaries annual fundraiser in uh, um, in Sarasota called uh, Winefest and they're going to make a contribution to uh, Songs and Stories. Um, the proverbial book is, I just talked to the publisher before I got on the show